word says about how we ought to live as your people in a world that is still rejecting you. Or grow us in patience, in holiness, in love, in right understanding, in clear thinking, and in living in a way that is winsome and that is attractive and winning to the world. We would not bruise fruit, that we would not act publicly in a way that is off-putting, that we would not put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel, but rather that in the way that we relate to other people who do not know you, that we would invite them to know you in Christ by the way that we live, by our patience and kindness to them in our public discourse. Grow us together in these things, we pray, for the glory of Jesus Christ in this church and others like it. Amen. In 1864, the citizens of Allegheny City, Pennsylvania, in cooperation with the National Reform Association, petitioned the U.S. Congress for an, act, for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that read as follows. We, the people of the United States, humbly acknowledge Almighty God as the source of all authority and power in civil government, the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler among the nations, his revealed will as the supreme law of the land, in order to constitute a Christian government and in order to form a more perfect union, we do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In other words, enshrining the lordship of Jesus in the constitution during the Civil War. More recently, in 2016, Doug Wilson wrote, I am arguing for a Christian America, and referencing the Lord, lordship of Jesus Christ in the Constitution would make me happy for starters. The magistrate, the government, should propose an amendment to the Constitution that consists of the text of the Apostles' Creed. I am simply saying that our nation, our leaders, our judges, our poets, our jesters, our people as a whole, must confess that Jesus is Lord. They must confess that only Jesus is Lord. Other nations are called to do the same, and as they do, they would, of course, recognize one another as sister nations in Christ, close quote. Ah, of course. More recently still, on June 26th of this year, Lauren Boebert, U.S. Republican representative for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, said to a group of her Christian constituents at a church meeting, I quote, the church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk, end quote. This rhetoric is becoming common in our public discourse, and it's becoming persuasive to some Christians. Now, it is a protest against godlessness. The question is, is it Protestant? How do Protestants relate to non-Christian institutions and governments? Are the only two options Christian nationalism or cultural retreat? Must everyone else agree with us in order for them to live around us. More to the point, must Christians rule the public square 
for Christ to rule the public square. As you can see on your handout in your bulletin, this morning's sermon will be organized by seven foundational convictions for Christian engagement with a non-Christian world. This is going to be a topical sermon, so I'm going to be all over the Bible. I've given you the text references on your handout so you can go back and look them up. Normally, I just do an expositional uh, sermon where the point of the sermon is the point of the text that we're going through, but we're taking a break from our series in John to do a topical sermon on Christian engagement with the non-Christian world from a particularly Protestant perspective in celebration of Reformation Day, which is the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany. Seven foundational convictions then for Christian engagement with a non-Christian world. And the applications of this sermon will mainly be, we should think a certain way that drives living a certain way in public. So first, we are all created in God's image. That's the first conviction. We are all created in God's image no matter what our convictions, no matter what our faith commitments or our faith uncommitments. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let us make man in our image, God says, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As I was reading that, I was just thinking I should probably give one more caveat to this sermon. I'm not going to tell you policy uh, conclusions to come to as a Christian on public policy issues that are raging today. What this sermon is designed to do is help you understand how to think through those issues And how to talk about them as a Christian in the public square with people who aren't Christians. And what kinds of assumptions you need to bring to that table. And the first assumption is, the person that you're talking to, and the person that's talking to you, the person you're disagreeing with, is made in God's image. You share that with them. God's image in humanity, then, is not merely something that we are. It's not just, as philosophers would say, ontological. It's not just about our being. It's also something we do. It's functional. God commissioned humanity to exercise dominion, to rule as God's representative on earth. We rule because that's what God created us in his image to do. We oversee, we take responsibility for the things and people around us. That's what it means to be human. It is human nature to rule over this world because human nature is made in God's royal image. Being made in God's image then means that we have the innate inclination and capacity to exercise authority over this world for the flourishing of humanity. God hardwired that into us by creating us in his image and commanding us to rule. Of course, we all sinned as represented in and by 
Adam, we refused to leave the knowledge of good and evil to God. Instead, we ate of the forbidden fruit, and just as God had warned, we died. We drew down the penalty of physical death, and because we had sinned against an infinitely holy and loving and righteous God, we were subject to the proportional penalty of eternal conscious torment in hell. But even then, God had mercy. He killed animals to make skins to cover our shame and nakedness, which announced the pattern of blood atonement in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, for the forgiveness of our sins. If we turn from our own self-reliance about knowing good and evil to trust God in Christ with that. The image of God then was defaced, but it was not erased. Still, though, humanity became so sinful that in Genesis 6-5, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I cannot think of a more complete convictional statement about the sinfulness and the depravity of human nature. As a punishment and as a pattern to warn all future generations of the final judgment at the end of history, God sent the flood over all the earth. But he saved Noah and his family. When Noah got off the ark, God made a covenant, not just with Noah, not just with his family. He did make a covenant with Noah and his family before the flood. That was just with them. I'm going to save you from the flood. He did it. But then he makes a covenant with Noah, and not just with his family, but with all people who would ever come after him and all other kinds of living flesh, animals. In Genesis 8, 20 to 9, 17... And this leads us to our second conviction. We are all covenanted with creation. Whether we're Christians or not, you are in covenant with God. Because He created you. And He is being patient and having mercy with you before He ends the world. Whether you realize that or not. You're made in His image. This covenant with all creation... Genesis 8.20 to 9.17 establishes God's commitment never again to do what he did at the flood since man's heart is so evil. In other words, look, I could do this. I could send another flood every day for the rest of however long I want history to last, but that would be pointless because a flood isn't going to change people's hearts. It's not going to fix the problem. God would say in Genesis 9, 11, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living, living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I will set my bow in the clouds, the rainbow. The rainbow isn't just for Christians. It's for non-Christians. It's not just for humanity. It's for animals to see. So this is God's covenant with all humanity, all Noah's offspring, not just Shem, not just the Semites, but Ham and Japheth too, the Canaanites. And with all living creatures, at least six times in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, God specifies that his covenant is not only with all humanity, but all living flesh, human and otherwise. The command is, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, that's what he commands us as humanity to do. He gives them all plants and animals for food. He provides justice for humanity to execute. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, not by God, by man, 
shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In short, God will provide a future for humanity by never again sending a flood. God will provide food. Humanity will be responsible before God for family formation, for food production, for fairness in administering, administering proportional retributive justice. So God's going to provide a future for humanity. These are my little Fs. I'm a preacher. I alliterate. A future for humanity by not repeating the flood. And humanity will be responsible before God for family reproduction, human flourishing, food production, and fairness. What's important to see here is that God's covenant with Noah and with all humanity and with all living flesh is not redemptive. There's no promise of end time, eternal blessing or salvation connected to this. Nor does it provide for the spiritual transformation of human nature. It's merely preservative in view of the fallen sinfulness of human nature. What's more, it's not special or exclusive to God's people. It's not just for the Shemites. It's common to all people. This is not special grace, then, that saves or consummates anything. It is merely common grace that preserves. And civil government, represented in the provision of capital punishment as limited, retributive, proportional, preventative justice. That's part of the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah. So when I say Noahic, what I mean is of or appertaining to the covenant with Noah. You might also see it in books referred to as Noahide. I love that. That's cool. Noahide. It makes me sound like I'm from Texas. Noahide. But I'm just going to say Noahic. Noah. This is common to all people. And civil government is part of God's covenant with Noah and with all creation. It's common. And as such, then, civil government does not redeem anything. And you, Christians, should not expect the government to redeem anything. All it does is preserve public life as the theater of God's redemptive plan. It does that in a limited way. It does that in a very imperfect way. Civil government preserves orderly conditions in which the gospel can spread and God's plan to redeem can be executed. That's all civil government does. That's all you should expect it to do, and you should not expect it to do it perfectly. David Van Drunen notes that Catholics say grace perfects nature. It's a Catholic way of talking. Grace perfects nature. Neo-Calvinists, neo is just a prefix that means new. New Calvinists say grace restores nature. But a better short formula is twofold, Van Drunen says. Common grace Common grace preserves nature, grace given to all people in common under Noah, and saving grace consummates nature. Common grace in Noah preserves nature, 
saving grace consummates nature or brings nature to its consummate conclusion. That is what Protestants should believe. Common grace preserves nature in God's covenant with Noah. Saving grace consummates nature in Christ. Civil government is not an expression of saving grace in Christ. It is an expression of common grace in God's covenant with all living flesh. Human and animal, Christian and non-Christian. Civil government then bears the character of common grace in that government itself is not redemptive. It is merely preservative. Politics only preserves, restrains, and prevents. And it is only provisional. It's only for this world, not for the world to come. Just like God's covenant with Noah is going to last until the heavens and the earth pass away. So government is not redemptive in any sense. It's not spiritual. It only touches external things of this life, not the internal things of the soul or the conscience or the life to come. So again, David Van Drunen summarizes it this way. The Noahic covenant before the flood is, with partic- is particular to Noah and promises salvation from the flood. The Noahic covenant after the flood is universal with all creation. It's preservative, not redemptive. It only preserves, it doesn't redeem. And it aims to maintain the human social order through reproduction, Genesis 9-1, proper eating, animals and plants, and the administration of justice. By man shall his blood be shed. And here's the implication for Christian thinking about civil government. If God called all human beings generally to the pursuit of procreation, eating, and justice without excluding people for reasons of religious profession, then excluding people from human society or government participation for this reason is inherently problematic since it does not speak of human beings prosecuting each other for wrongs inflicted on God. In other words, civil government is not responsible to enforce the first four of the Ten Commandments on worship because it can't. Civil government can't make you worship because it can't touch your heart because Jesus says, those who worship me must worship in spirit and truth, not just in obedience to some government mandate. Nor can civil government reach into your soul to enforce the last commandment against coveting. The government can't tell you don't covet and expect you to obey that based on mere fiat. You can't do that. Civil government only enforces respect for its own God-ordained authority, respect for human life, respect for human marriage and procreation, respect for personal property, Rooted in the idea of food production. If you're going to have a plot of land, if you're going to have an ox to pull, if you're going to have a cart, you have personal property. And people have to respect that. And civil government can help people respect that along with telling the truth in our words and testimony. In other words, commands 5 through 9. 
So God's covenant with creation in Noah provides us all with a common realm shared by Christians and non-Christians where we share space with people who don't believe as we do about God and Jesus. God's covenant with Noah is what regulates then our life together with non-Christians in the external temporal order. We relate to, uh, to non-Christians based on God's covenant with Noah and the things that it commands and forbids. And civil government is part of that external temporary order which cannot compel faith or unbelief against conscience. Since that's the case, the way we all agree together in society when we all disagree about God and Jesus is based on what theologians of the Protestant Reformation called natural law. Natural law is not natural theology. Natural theology is the attempt to understand God perfectly based on nature alone, reasoning up from nature rather than reasoning down from divine revelation in the Bible. That's natural theology. Natural law is not that. Natural law is simply what we know to be morally true and good and binding based on being created in God's image and subject to God's covenant with Noah and all humanity. We're all under natural law as a human race together, and it is natural law that should form the language of Christian public discourse on public or civil morality that can be binding on both Christians and non-Christians alike. Because we are all under God's covenant with Noah, we are all accountable to the natural law of that covenant, whether we're Christians or not, because God made that covenant with everybody, not just with Christians. And that leads us to our third point. Third conviction, we're all under natural law together with, as Christians and non-Christians, we're all under it. And this is illustrated in the Bible in three different narratives of the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there now. I've got, them. I've got the, the references there in your handout. But just listen. Remember the pagan king Abimelech? Remember what Abraham did to him, lied about Sarah? The man, my wife is so good looking that if I don't lie about her, somebody's going to do something bad. They're going to kill me and take her. So I'm just going to tell her, just tell everybody you're my sister. Yikes. And that gets him in trouble. So listen, in Genesis 20, verse 9, Abim- Abimelech takes Sarah as if she's only Abraham's sister so that she can be Abimelech's wife and then God tells him hey you're in trouble buddy that woman is another man's wife and in Genesis 20 verse 9 Abimelech called Abraham the pagan calls the Christian and said to him what have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin you have done to me Things that ought not to be done, Abraham. That's what Abimelech says to Abraham. Hey, man, why you want to lie about your wife being your sister? Now, 
Our question should be, how did Abimelech know that? How did Abimelech know that was wrong? How did he know that he shouldn't take another man's wife? How, did, how does that come to him with so much conviction? He knew it because he has a conscience. He knew it because of natural law, the image of God. That's hardwired into Abimelech because he's human. As soon as he understands this woman to be another man's wife, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he understands a Christian to have sinned against him by lying about that and drawing him then into sin against natural law, even though he's not a Christian. So Abimelech thinks Abraham should have known better, better, and Abimelech himself knew better. So notice, it's the pagan king rebuking the Christian based on natural law, yet it can also work the other way around, which we see in Lot's conversation with the Sodomite men in Genesis 19.7. I beg you, brothers, not brothers in Christ, of course, but in our common and civil humanity, do not act so wickedly against these visitors to my house because you want to have unlawful sexual relations with them. Hey, don't act so wickedly. Well, how can Lot say that and expect that to be compelling to non-Christians? Well, he's saying it based on natural law. Lot thinks the Sodomites should know better than to try to commit sexual sin with other men. They should know that naturally. And God thinks so too, because God holds Sodom accountable based on the Noahic covenant, even though they never read Genesis. He destroys the city because God thought they should have known better. Sodom had zero respect for the natural law, zero respect for the sexual ethic of be fruitful and multiply. They practiced a form of sex that was contrary to the image of God in humanity as male and female, and their treatment of strangers was also inhumane. Same thing is true for how Jacob's sons respond to the pagan prince of Shechem when he raped their sister Dinah in Genesis 34, 7, which says that Shechem, the pagan prince, had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done, not even by a pagan. How did Abimelech know? Natural law. How did Sodom know? Natural law. How should Shechem have known better? Natural law. They all knew better, according to the text, naturally, without ever being evangelized, without ever reading Genesis. And this applied not only to these particular Canaanites, but to all the pagan Canaanites who lived there before the Israelite conquest. And that is actually the reason that the conquest happened in the first place. You know, the Bible gets a bad rap here. Does God believe in genocide? Because look at this! People get real angry about this stuff. And I understand. I understand. It's very foreign. But listen, God thought the Canaanites should have known better. The Canaanites did, in fact, know better than to live the way they lived. Why did God kick all the Canaanites out of Canaan? Why did he send the Israelites in 
to destroy them. How could God hold pagan, pagans accountable if he didn't airdrop copies of the Mosaic Covenant down into Canaan before killing them? Natural law. He airdropped something even more convincing. He airdropped conscience into their heart. Leviticus 18. When God tells Le Israel in Leviticus 18 not to commit any sexual sin, whether heterosexual deviance or homosexual deviance or bestiality, the motive he gives is the natural law accountability of the Canaanites themselves. Translation, you don't have to quote Leviticus 18 to argue against homosexuality in the public square. You have to appeal to conscience. That's it. That's what Leviticus 18.24 itself does. Do not make yourselves unclean, Israelites, God talking to them, by any of these things. Why? For natural law. By all these things, I, by, all these, by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Natural law. He's keeping them accountable based on what they ought to have known from how God created them and from their conscience. The same natural law is still operative in New Covenant times because the New Covenant does not put an end to the Noahic Covenant. People still today, non-Christian people, should know better than to violate natural law principles of morality, sexuality, and violence. Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. The same phrase used in Genesis 34 and Genesis 19. What ought not be done. That is natural law language from Genesis. And that innate knowledge of natural law is the very thing they are suppressing in Romans 1.18. There's got to be some knowledge there to suppress. If a non-Christian is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, what does that tell you about the non-Christian? He knows something that he doesn't want to know and he wishes weren't true and he's trying to suppress it away. And he can't. The very act of suppression presupposes knowledge. And David Van Drunen quotes Augustine saying, Paul does not call them ignorant of the truth, but says that they held the truth in iniquity. It's not that you don't know. It's that you don't want to know. And when Paul says in Romans 127, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, he assumes that all people know from natural law and conscience the natural function of their sexuality. Homosexuality violates natural law. Everyone knows this, no matter how hard they try to suppress it. In fact, this is precisely the reason that the LGBTQ community must suppress every other conscience that naturally disagrees with them. But conversely, non-Christians are often very moral according to what God said to Noah about family and food and fairness. 
Romans 2, 14 to 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What law is that? What law is written on their hearts? It's a natural law. Because they're created in God's image. Because they're subject to the Noahic covenant. Even if they don't know it. Even if they haven't read it. This is why God can judge and condemn people to hell even if they've never known the law of Moses or the gospel itself. It's because they have sinned against the light that they did have in their hearts, the light of nature. They've sinned against their own conscience as God wrote that law on their heart. They knew. They just did not see fit to acknowledge what they knew. That's what Romans 1, 21 says, and that's why they became futile in their thinking. Their thinking got worse and worse and worse. This natural law is the reason his wrath is revealed against all people who suppress the truth of natural law in their hearts in order to commit their favorite sins. And if we don't repent of that and find mercy in Christ Jesus, then we will be judged based on that standard and our undeniable knowledge of it. What this means is that the natural law ethic obligates all human beings and is grounded in God's work of preservation, not in his work of redemption. What then does this mean for us as Christians in a non-Christian world? Well, this isn't a main point. I'm just going to throw this in as a bonus. But one of the things it means is that when you're doing evangelism, you have an ally in the heart of the unbeliever that you're talking to. And that ally's name is conscience based on natural law. But that's not my fourth point. My fourth conviction is that Christians are citizens of two kingdoms then. Christians are citizens of two kingdoms. The distinction is between temporal and eternal, between outward and inward. This is not... Platonic dualism. This is not Plato's two realities, ideal and real. It's not dressed up as Thomas Aquinas and packaged as Protestant. This is actually one of the doctrines that drove the Protestant Reformation, even in John Calvin's Geneva in Switzerland. The Protestant Reformation in England and Europe didn't happen in a political vacuum. It happened in the context of a British monarchy that changed religions like pants or like it changed monarchs in the 1500s. And it happened in cities that were struggling to understand what the local city authorities should do as opposed to what the local church authorities should do. And here it's helpful to remember what we might call a tale of two cities, Zurich and Geneva, both in Switzerland. The Zurich model was developed by Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, who said, when the gospel is preached and all, including the magistrate, hear it and heed it, magistrate is the governor, then the Christian man is nothing else than the faithful and good citizen, and the Christian city is nothing other than the Christian church. Ah. But that had implications. Although the church needs its own elders and deacons in the early centuries, once civil governments were converted to Christ, 
Zwingli said. Magistrates, governors, civil servants fulfilled those functions according to the example of Old Testament Israel, end quote. Ah, so instead of you having elders and deacons, you would be served by mayors. In contrast to Zwingli or Bullinger, Zwingli's successor in Zurich, Calvin stressed the distinction between the church and the political order, and he provided a model for a range of self-ruling church government functions through the offices of pastor and elder, deacon. And here's the Geneva model then that is the counter to the Zurich model. Calvin's conviction in Geneva was that the pastors and churches should be the ones exercising the church discipline. Can you imagine if the mayor of Elgin was responsible to exercise church discipline here? That's the Zurich model, not the Geneva model. Calvin took gifts of leadership in Romans 12.8, the idea of leadership, not to be true of civil leaders like Zwingli took it. Calvin took it as church leaders presiding over church discipline by challenging the claim of Zwingli that in a Christian society, the functions of poor relief and discipline are to be yielded to civil government. By disagreeing with that, Calvin launched a new tradition of reformed political theology dedicated to establishing the autonomy, the self-rule, the freedom of the church from the political order. And so the real issue in Geneva was whether the pastors and elders held the spiritual authority of discipline distinct from the civil authority of the magistrates. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Calvin did not believe in classical liberal democracy like you and I believe in it. He's not a classical liberal by any stretch of the imagination. But he was also not a theocrat, which he is being made out to be today by many popular pastors and theologians. He believed in and worked for the separation of church and state at some level, and he did so because he believed that the civil kingdom is temporal and external, and the spiritual kingdom is eternal and internal. The idea of these two kingdoms is Catholic, but with a little c. Not Roman, but universally Protestant. Scottish Presbyterian Second Book of Discipline, 1578, distinguishes between state power and church power like this. The civil power is called the power of the sword, and the church power, the power of the keys. Different. The magistrate, the government, commands external things for external quietness and peace among the subjects. The minister, the church, handles external things only for the sake of conscience's cause, for internal reasons. Magistrate, the government handles external things only and actions done before men externally. The civil magistrate craves and gets obedience by the sword and other external means, but the ministry, the church, by spiritual sword and spiritual means. Translation, the government can't tell you what to think. And you, Christian, shouldn't want the government to be able to tell other people what they should think even when your guy is the one in the government because that'll turn sideways on you real quick.
But this is not to leave the public square unaccountable to the risen Christ or to hand it over to the headship of Satan, nor is it ignoring Abraham Kuyper's famous dictum that there is not a square inch in all reality of which Christ does not say mine. Christ does say mine about both the civil kingdom and the spiritual kingdom. Christ is simply sovereign over both kingdoms in different capacities. Here's how John Calvin himself put it in the 1536 edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. There is a twofold government in man. This is Calvin. One aspect is spiritual, whereby the conscience is instructed in piety and reverencing God. The second is political, whereby man is educated for the duties of humanity and citizenship that must be maintained among men. These are usually called the spiritual and temporal jurisdiction. That's Calvin. By which is meant that the former sort of government pertains to the life of the soul, the spiritual, while the latter, the temporal, has to do with concerns of the present life, not only with food and clothing, but with laying down laws whereby a man may live his life among other men, holily, honorably, and temperately. For the former resides in the inner mind, the spiritual, while the latter, the temporal, regards only the, and regulates only the outward behavior. The one we may call the spiritual kingdom, the other, the political kingdom. Two kingdoms in Calvin. It's not Catholic. It's Protestant. There are in man, so to speak, two worlds over which different kings and different laws have authority. End quote. So the risen Christ is sovereign over both these kingdoms in Calvin's theology. In his ascension to God's right hand, Calvin says, Jesus was given both the universal and the spiritual governments. Both the government of heaven and earth and the perpetual government of the church. So the civil kingdom is temporal and external. The spiritual kingdom is eternal and internal. And both are ultimately ruled by the same risen Christ, though in different capacities. Christ rules the external temporal kingdom as creator. And Christ rules the internal spiritual kingdom as redeemer. In short, Christ rules even where Christians don't rule. And until you get that straight, you're going to be an offense in your public comments about how Christianity relates to the government. The Christian's primary citizenship is spiritual and eternal. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 13.14, the Christian's secondary citizenship is secular and temporary on earth, where we seek the welfare of the city and find our welfare in its welfare. I hope you see now that natural law and the two kingdoms theology provides a biblically faithful way of responding to Lauren Boebert when she panders to Christian constituents by telling them exactly what their flesh wants to hear in church, that they ought to be in control of the government. that the church is supposed to be directing the government, the government is not supposed to direct the church. She's only about a quarter right. 
She's right that the government is not supposed to direct the church in its doctrinal commitments, in its discipline of church members, or in its direction of the Christian conscience, the life of the soul, and how to be reconciled to God's eternal and spiritual kingdom in Christ through his word. Yes, the government has nothing to do with that. The state has neither the ability nor the jurisdiction to create obedience to God from the heart or to sanctify anybody for the eternal and spiritual kingdom of God. But the state can and should direct the church and its members in matters external to the church, things like mandatory reporting of sexual predators or matters of financial integrity or safety issues like having smoke detectors and sprinkler systems unless you got grandfathered in graciously to a previous municipal exemption like we did. (laughs) Praise God. In short, the state can never keep me from coveting, lusting, or envying, but it can and should prosecute church members and officials if they're caught stealing, embezzling, or committing sexual crimes and things of that nature. And of course, Lauren Bovert is wrong to say that the church should direct the government. After all, which church exactly is it that should direct the government? It's bad for every other church that's not the church in power. Ask John Owen or any of the 2,000 Puritan nonconformist preachers who were ejected from their pulpits by the Church of England itself during the Great Ejection of 1662. Protestants had control of that government too. And look what happened to men as faithful as John Owen. When the church directs the state, the church-run state turns around and directs every other church not sanctioned by the church-run state. The confusion and persecution introduced by a state-sponsored church is the very reasons so many of the Puritans fled England to New England. In the first place, if you didn't practice the Anglican form of worship, you didn't belong. This is why Reformation Protestants like John Calvin wanted the church separated from the state so that whoever was in charge of the state, no matter how churchy they were, couldn't persecute other churches who were not churchy in the same way the churchy rulers were churchy. The church does not exercise the power of the sword. It exercises the power of the keys. That doesn't mean that a Christian can't be in a pagan military. Witness Luke 3 that we just heard. What does John the Baptist say to the pagan soldiers? Don't get out of the government. Just stop abusing your power. Be content with what the government's paying you. But the church only has authority to preach the gospel and make disciples from all the nations and to turn the keys of the kingdom by affirming what is a right profession of faith and who are right professors of faith. That's membership. That's statements of faith in church covenants. That's the power of the keys. The keys of the spiritual kingdom are given to the church. Jesus did not give the church the sword of the state. But the keys to the kingdom are greater. For an example of what it looks like for a Christian religious institution to wield the sword of the state, again, we need to look no further than the history of England right after the Reformation. Under King Henry VIII, everybody had to be part of the Church of England or bleed. 
Under Edward VI, they had to become consistent Calvinists or bleed. Under Bloody Mary, they had to embrace Roman Catholicism or bleed. And then there was the great ejection of 1662, where 2,000 Protestant ministers lost their ministries because they wouldn't abide strictly by the Book of Common Prayer, which, by the way, was written by other Protestant ministers. And, of course, for an example of what it looks like for a non-Christian religious institution to wield the sword of the state, we need look no further than Iran. So, Christian, count your blessings and talk in public like you have counted them. The separation of church and state is not, as Lauren Bovert called it, junk. It is one of the many good things that separates the Christian West from the religious violence of either a state church or an, or an Islamic state. It is, in fact, the providential reason we can gather here this morning to worship without fear of state-sponsored violence. Aren't you glad you don't have to worry about the Elgin police coming here and saying, up, oh, everybody out, shut it down, or we're going to take you in. You should be glad of that. But you should act like it, and you should talk like it, and you should pray like it. It is part of our own historically Protestant heritage from the Reformation. It has shaped the West to be what it is today. Christians should be grateful for it, even if it means we don't always get our way politically. And we should not be duped by either politicians or pastors who tell us otherwise. But if the church should not direct the state, then what is the situation of the Christian and the church relative to the civil kingdom? That's the fifth conviction. Christians are exiles in Babylon, not conquerors in Canaan. Christians are exiles in Babylon, not conquerors in Canaan. From Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Thus, this is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Man, is that not the opposite of the ethic of many Christians? Boy, I'm not sure I want to have any more kids. If this is what the world's going to be like. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon. Don't decrease. Multiply, Christian family. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Noticeably absent from God's counsel to the exiles is any command to rework Babylon into a new Jerusalem. Israel's exiles find their welfare in the welfare of Babylon as Babylon, not the other way around. In fact, God commands the exiles to build and plant in Babylon knowing that in 70 years... The fields that they plant and the houses that they build are going to be burned to the ground. doesn't have to be eternal to be meaningful. And in 1 Peter 1, when Peter refers to the churches across the Roman Empire as elect exiles, he's saying something about the Christian and culture. He's thinking that Christians in this world are like Israelites exiles in Babylon, not Israelite conquerors in Canaan. So we build... And we plant. We marry. We have children. We multiply. We seek the welfare of the city. We pray for it. We seek our welfare in its welfare, not the other way around. 
Maybe we even run for office or serve in the military. He told them to be a part of that culture. The same with the tax collectors that John the Baptist spoke to. Don't quit your government job. Just quit collecting more than you're authorized to charge. Joseph served in the Egyptian administration. Daniel served in the Babylonian government. Nehemiah served in the Persian administration. And Paul greets Christians in Caesar's household without telling them they got to move out. But Joseph didn't redeem Egypt. Daniel didn't redeem Babylon. And we're not redeeming Elgin, much less America. That's why we don't talk in terms of redeem the city. Speaking the gospel to people? Yes, absolutely. Cooperating with unbelievers for the city's preservation and welfare? Yes, of course. Serve on a community board. Sit on a city council. Start a business that provides gainful employment. Holding unbelievers accountable to natural law standards on marriage, family, and justice? Yes. You better be ready to pay for it, but yes. Redeeming the city? No. Our Christian stance and conduct in public should be what John Calvin suggested to the Protestants of his own day suffering state persecution in France. A regard, he said, ought to be had for all Christians and non-Christians alike. Since we ought to cultivate as far as we can peace and friendship with all, there is indeed, listen to this, there is indeed nothing more adverse to concord than contempt. Christians do not show contempt for unbelievers. Otherwise, they will never enter these doors because they don't think you want them here. Christians are to cultivate peace with the wicked insofar as possible, preferring to recede from our right rather than originate contention by our own fault. That's how you reform. That is a natural law ethic undergirding two kingdoms theology among Christians sharing public space with non-Christians waiting for Jesus to return because there's nothing to redeem in Babylon but souls. That leads us to our sixth point. Christians are called to make disciples of all nations. Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus tells us all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's the universal authority over the civil kingdom. All authority given to Jesus, civil kingdom. Without encouragement, he commands us, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. That is his authority over the spiritual kingdom. Jesus already rules the civil kingdom, even if Christians don't. That is the wonderful freedom of the Great Commission. We're only called to make disciples of all nations, not nations made up of all disciples. That's actually borne out in Acts and Revelation. It's only individuals from ethnicities who are taught and water baptized in Acts, never nations as such. John's grammar of praise for Jesus in Revelation 5 affirms this. You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus did not ransom multiple nations as nations. He's not calling you to do that or the church. He ransomed one new international people taken from among the nations. Even when the king of Nineveh led his people to call out to Jonah's God for mercy, that was only a response to the people's prior individual repentance. And even then, the revival was only temporary 
God judged Nineveh later. Read the book of Nahum. Even when you have it eventually coming from the top down like in Nineveh, still only temporary. The truth is, Christian nationalism only ever produces Christian nominalism. It literally domesticates the gospel. Stuart Robinson was a Presbyterian minister in the Civil War era, and he said Christian nationalism tends only to corrupt the principles of that religion it is meant to encourage. By bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and compensations those who will externally profess and conform to it. You just say, okay, call yourself a Christian and you can have your citizenship. Call yourself a Christian, you can have these privileges. Call yourself a Christian and you'll be handsomely compensated for it in your public life. Robinson didn't, do, didn't like that. He said, that. That's just Christian knowledge. You're not producing any Christians. You're inoculating people to the gospel. Robinson emphatically criticized what he called the political absurdity, injustice, and expediency of setting up a constitution which two-thirds of the people must perjure themselves in swearing to. <laughs> You're going to put Jesus in the constitution. Everybody's going to have to agree with that, but hardly anybody's going to mean it. What good is that? What kind of nation are you even? That's not even good politically. And the ethical absurdity of tempting a majority of the people to tell a lie in avowing their belief in Jesus Christ and the revelation of his will by the alternative, by presenting them the alternative, of simply being unrecognized as any part of the people whose life and liberty the Constitution is intended to protect. You don't confess Jesus as Christ as we've put it in the Constitution. You don't get the protections of the Constitution. Well, (laughs) come on, man. That's not fighting fair. Translation, writing Christianity into the Constitution forces most citizens to act unchristianly by lying about their loyalty to Jesus in order to enjoy protections afforded by the Constitution. No wonder unbelievers think Christian nationalists are diabolical. That is diabolical. That's terrible. I mean, can you blame non-Christians for not liking Christians when they come off like that in public? Would you like it in an Islamic state? I don't think so. Would you like it if Catholics had control of our government? I don't think so. So don't do that to other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in fact, Christian nationalism forgets that the church is the holy nation today. That's our final point. John Winthrop's vision as governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was for that community to be a city on a hill. He got that image from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus referred to his own disciples as a city on a hill whose light could not be hidden. Jesus did not mean for his disciples to create a nation or a nation state. He meant for them to plant churches. In the Bible then, the church is the spiritual municipality, the polis, the city, the city on a hill Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5.14. The church is the city of light, not America or Texas. Maybe that's why Peter referred to the church as a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. The church is the holy nation, biblically. That's a proof text. 
Paul, in similar fashion, referred to Gentile Christians as fellow citizens, sum politi, with Jewish saints together in the same churches. They were no longer strangers and aliens in Ephesians 2.19, which meant Christians could no longer be xenophobes. You see the point. Whether it's a municipality, a nationality, a citizenry, or an ethnicity, the Bible uses those metropolitan metaphors to refer to the spiritual kingdom, not the civil kingdom run by spiritual people. There is neither Jew nor Greek. We are all one new humanity, one new race, one new nationality, one new ethnicity, one new municipality, one new citizenry in the church in Christ. The church is the holy nation, not the state. Time to wrap up. When President George W. Bush was governor of Texas, he declared June 11th, I can hardly say this with a straight face, he declared June 11th, 2000, Jesus Day. Right. A holiday dedicated to Christ's example of love, compassion, sacrifice, and service. An editorial in the New Republic suggested that Bush did not glorify but rather cheapened Jesus because the reason for Christ's specialness is not simply in contribution to social service, but his status as the second person of the Trinity. Attempts to employ the sacred and eternal for the common and temporal end up trivializing faith. And so D.G. Hart said, where Christians have tried to use their faith for political engagement, they have generally distorted Christianity. By contrast, when the church does remain faithful to its mission in the word, this is Matt Tuninga in his book on Calvin's political theology, when the church does remain faithful to its mission in the word, ordinances, and discipline, it prophetically shapes its members' understanding of justice. Just the church being the church, just preaching the word, shapes your view of what justice is and is not. Christians are called not only to walk as self-sacrificial servants, doing good to the just and unjust alike, but to practice humility, to be reasonable. That's in the Bible. Christian, you're commanded, Romans 12, be reasonable. How much public talk of Christians just does not sound reasonable. And we are to seek peace insofar as it depends on us. At the very least, this requires that we work through our political disagreements with non-believers and with one another in a manner that prioritizes mutual respect and seeks common ground. After all, Tuninga says, and this is maybe one of the best lines in his whole book, not even a society of Christians can be ruled with simple reference to a set of biblical proof texts. (laughs) From all we've heard this morning, I hope we understand a little more of what Jesus meant when he said, to Pilate, no less, my kingdom is not of this world. I hope we understand more of what Paul meant when he said, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Maybe now we can mean it when we say with the writer to the Hebrews and with the Protestants who have gone before us, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
And hopefully, we can agree that two kingdoms theology of public engagement of the church is biblical, it is beneficial, and contrary to popular opinion, it is Protestant. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, forgive us for thinking that you cannot be in control, that Christ cannot rule the civil kingdom unless his people rule it. Help us never to talk like that. Help us to understand what these things mean for our engagement in the public sphere. Help us to let this way of thinking shape the way we relate to non-Christians around us. Help us to be faithful and bold to speak the gospel. And help us to be wise in the way we conduct our disagreements about public policy with non-Christians. Make us wise. And not just wise, but winsome. Make us kind. Help us to be reasonable. Help us to be good. Help us to be winning. Help our tone to be congenial and attractive, not off-putting about all these things. Teach us to speak this way, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We've been thinking about God's wisdom in